0: Welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. I'm here with Sean the Sheep, Chatham.
1: Oh, wow. You're bringing oh, yeah. out my nickname right there. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Full bore. Everyone's going to know. and Know your secret, Sean. You oh, are wow. a, sh- okay. a
1: sheep. Mm-hmm. You are a sheep. Well, hopefully I'm not too sheepish in this podcast.
0: <laughs> yes, this is this is a, a long-running joke we've had um, between us and other guys at our church. So we are now bringing it into the spotlight. But anyways, um, welcome to the show. Uh, we have a pretty packed episode today. Uh, I'm going to be talking about covenant theology. But before we get into that, um, I want to note, please, if you haven't already, check out our YouTube channel. Just search The Particular Baptist. Subscribe at the bell to get notifications. Also, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other platforms. You can find us there for the audio portion. Um, and then our blog, theparticularbaptist net Uh, we try to post their weekly i think we've been pretty consistent at that but we're trying to do that so if you want some written material that we have done there's it's myself sean and two other guys that contribute to that um so check that out and i with that i will turn it over to sean to introduce our topic
1: yeah so as dan said we're going to be talking about covenant theology today and the impetus really came from a dividing line episode uh a week or two ago, I think it's two weeks ago now, uh, where James White was talking about 1689 federalism. And uh not all Reformed Baptists hold the same view of covenant theology that we do. There's two uh two major camps, I'm not aware of any other camps, but there's two camps of uh covenant theology within Reform uh within uh the Reformed Baptist movement, I guess you could say. Um what's called the 1689 federalism, which we hold to, and then uh, modern Reformed Baptist covenant theology. And uh, that might be a little bit of bias on our part because we say it's modern and it's not what uh, the original Reformed Baptists in the uh, 17th century held to. But um, that, and we'll get into that as the show progresses. But um, James White made two claims that we sort of reacted against and felt needed to be addressed. Uh, The first claim was, that um, he felt that 1689 federalism was an overreaction to um, basically Presbyterian covenant theology, which we would disagree with. Obviously, we think it's biblical. And also, he didn't like the um, idea that uh, Abraham was saved by the new covenant. Um, as a, uh, uh, someone who holds to the modern view, uh, the modern Reformed Baptist view, um, he would say that Abraham was saved by the covenant of grace. And that is not identical with the new covenant. So uh, with that, do you want to get started, Dan?
0: Sure. And I'll note too, I think there might be one other view um, called new covenant theology. Um, I'm honestly not as familiar with that, but I think that's another view that
1: reform that is floats around in reform Baptist circles. It's it's in Calvinistic Baptist circles. Um, it's definitely like I could see an argument from for uh, for either sixty nine eighty nine federalism or the modern view from the sixty nine eighty nine confession new covenant theology because of its view of the law. I would say at that point I, I wouldn't call you a reformed Baptist at all, and I don't know okay. I know of one one person that calls himself a reformed Baptist that holds to basically new covenant theology, but um as a general rule. I'm, I'm not throwing any brothers under the bus for holding to it, but I'm, I'm saying historically probably wouldn't call you a reformed Baptist. That's not meant to be an insult in any way. It's just names have meaning historically.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Well, good clarification. So like Sean said, we're going to be focusing on um, 1689 federalism, which we believe is biblical and we believe is consistent with the historical data as it relates to our confession and therefore consistent with our confession. Um, And I will note some sources, at least the sources that I pull from, I use Pascal denounce book, uh, the distinctiveness of Baptist covenant theology, which is very helpful. It goes through the historical argument for this uh, from a confessional perspective um, and really kind of a reform perspective on the Baptist side and then the biblical argument as well. Um, And then I also use Brandon Adams uh, material he has a really helpful video called 1689 federalism introduction where he interviews uh Richard Marcellus James Renahan and his son Sam Renahan and they discuss 1689 federalism so there's a few videos um at least I think I think there's three or four that go through that um but the first one that he made was very helpful in this so I just want to kind of give credit where credit is due. so what is 1689 federalism This really attempts to frame covenant theology around how the Bible presents a covenant theology framework, that there is one way of salvation in history, but only in promise in those covenants that came before the new covenant. Pascal Denault notes in his book, quote, he says, the distinction between the revelation and the administration of the covenant of grace finds its whole meaning when the second element of Baptist federalism is added to it. That is to say, the full revelation of the covenant of grace in the new covenant. If Westminster federalism can be summarized as one covenant under two administrations, that of the 1689 would be one covenant revealed progressively and concluded formally under the new covenant. So basically what this means is that the new covenant as a formalized, solidified, ratified covenant did not exist before uh, Christ's death, essentially that it was revealed progressively over time through those other covenants, through promise, for instance, through Adam, you know, the, the promise of the seed of the woman coming to crush the head of the serpent. That was the gospel essentially preached to them. And it, it, by implication and logical conclusion, the new covenant, which would be ratified in the new covenant. So this was preached. And then obviously the Mosaic covenant points forward, to the new covenant in that you have the types and the shadows through the sacrificial system. There's some sort of redemptive element to it pointing towards what was to come, but the new covenant in its substance did not exist yet. So that is a distinctive view of 1689 federalism, especially as uh, it contrasts Presbyterian covenant theology, because they would say that the covenant of grace actually existed in those covenants. It was just administered in different ways while we would say the substance is completely different, but the promise existed, it was revealed over time. So that's, I think that's a very important distinction to make as we go through this. Um, As Sam Ranahan has said, quote, the covenant of grace is the covenant of works kept for us. So essentially Christ's life was the fulfillment of the covenant of works, which would be under the Mosaic covenant. And then we could be recipients of the benefits of that by bringing his people into covenant with him. So when we, Repent, believe the gospel, all those benefits of that covenant, even I would say even in faith and repentance, that's part of that is received um, as part of those benefits um, of that covenant, because uh, it's not a conditional covenant. It's not conditional on anything uh, we do as forms of personal righteousness. It is all given to us of grace and uh, in a salvific way. Uh, through what Christ has done. So that's very, very important to distinguish that. And that really is what distinguishes the new covenant from the old in substance. And John Owen talks about this very clearly, he says, quote, a covenant properly is a compact or agreement on certain terms mutually stipulated by two or more parties. As promises are the foundation and rise of it, as it is between God and man, so it comprises also precepts or laws of obedience, which are prescribed to man on his part to be observed. But in the description of the covenant here, annexed the new covenant, there is no mention of any condition on the part of man, of any terms of obedience prescribed to him, but the whole consists in free, gratuitous promises, as we will see in the explication of it. So the the covenant is not conditional, it is completely given by grace, And its benefits thereof, and therefore um, is consistent with what we see in terms of salvation. You know, salvation is not of works, it's through faith. And this is the essence and substance of the new covenant. So that means that all those who repent and believe, even those in the Old Testament who had faith in the promise, were part of this new covenant since the new covenant did not exist back then. Um, And so the, uh, the same salvation that is found in the new covenant was applied to them. We're actually going to talk about that here um, very soon um, as we go through this, especially through our confession in the, in the biblical account. Um, before we get into the confessional aspect, I want to just read what Benjamin Keach said. Benjamin Keech was actually one of the signers of the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. He said, number one, or quote, number one, as it refers to Christ or to his part and work therein, and as thus it was a conditional covenant, Christ receives all for us, wholly upon the account of his own desert or merits. Number two, but whatsoever we receive by virtue of this covenant, it is holy in a way of free grace and favor through his merits or through the redemption we have by his blood. But take it either way, tis of grace, End quote. So we see that this covenant of grace is solely based upon the grace that God has given in Christ, and those who partake in it are of faith. So again, we can see this is why those in the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament would be saved in the same way. Our confession talks about this in chapter 8, paragraph 6. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday and today and forever. So that is a high-level overview of 1689 federalism, and um, I'll have Sean lead us into the biblical argument for why this is what we see biblically.
1: Yeah, so um, there's several places in the new testament where the new covenant is explicitly talked about um one is the great uh section in hebrews 8 9 and 10 and we should probably go there i probably want to start oh let's see we'll start with hebrews 8 and then we'll go to hebrews 10 hebrews 9 is important as well but i don't know that we're going to go through everything here today um so starting at verse 7 of hebrews 8 For finding fault with them, this is talking about, oh, sorry, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, that being the Mosaic covenant, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So the first principle we see here is that the new and old covenant are not the same, which you, you might think would be obvious, but uh, uh, it's, it's important to emphasize this. There's different promises, better promises on the new covenant than there was the old covenant. And this relates to... 2 as um, verse 12 says for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more this relates to the forgiveness of sins if we jump over to Hebrews chapter 10 as he'll continue with this and give me a second to uh, find this Uh, actually let's start at verse 1 for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices Excuse me, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscious conscience of sins, but in those sacrifices there rem- is a remembrance again made of sins every year for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body thou prepared for me. Um, and then I want to probably skip ahead just a little bit. Um uh to verse 15: whereof the Holy Ghost is also a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds, I will write them. And their sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So the point that the author of Hebrews is making here is the old covenant sacrificial system could not actually take away sins. It was not possible. What was necessary was a better sacrifice that could actually take away sins. This is the new covenant sacrifice. So anybody who is saved in the old covenant was not saved by the covenant they were in, or at least the substance of that covenant, because the substance of the Mosaic covenant was that sacrificial system, but that could not actually take away sins. We need the, um, the new Testament, the new covenant sacrifice in order to do that. Um, So we would then make the argument that anybody in the, New or the Old Testament period was saved by the virtue of the New Testament. There's uh, the New Covenant. Excuse me. Um, now, obviously, that sort of a, a lot of people I can imagine are are sort of pushing against that. How could the New Covenant save so, uh, the New Covenant save before it was established before Christ came? And the answer is, God is as the confession said, providing some of the benefits of the new covenant prior to its enactment. For example, in uh, Romans chapter three, starting at verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So here Paul is saying that Jesus was put forth as a propitiation, uh, at least partially to declare God's righteousness for the remission of sins that were past, i.e. previous to um, God putting forth Jesus as a propitiation. Why? Because God can't forgive without that sacrifice. That sacrifice is necessary for forgiveness. He did forgive in the old covenant period, but that's purely because of the certainty of the coming cross, not because of the substance. He actually had the ability to forgive quite yet. He was forgiving because of the certainty of the, the, the coming sacrifice of Christ. Now that means that, in some way, the people in the Old Testament needed to have the benefits of that uh, provided to them or that they wouldn't be completely saved without those benefits being enacted and, or without the the sacrifice being accomplished. So they need the new covenant because the sacrifice of Christ, it's the new covenant in his blood. Those, Those are inseparable. You can't separate the sacrifice of Christ from the new covenant you uh the people in the old testament that were saved were uh needed the new covenant in order to be saved and if they needed the new covenant in order to be saved that's that's essentially sixteen eighty nine federalism right there or at least the aspect of it we're (laughs) we're talking about uh right here and then one more proof text for that um romans 11 and so all israel shall be saved as it is written there shall come out of zion the deliverer and shall take turn away ungodliness from jacob For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. When are, when is Israel's sins actually taken away? It's when that new covenant is enacted. That is when uh, the sins are actually taken away. And the way I would like our listeners perhaps to think about this is if Jesus hadn't come, could anybody in the Old Testament have been saved? Well, the answer is obviously no, they couldn't have been saved. Therefore they must have in some sense been partaking of that sacrifice and that covenant, despite the fact that it hadn't actually been fully enacted yet.
0: Yep. That's exactly right. And I'll, and I'll uh, point to another place in Hebrews here, humans, ugh, Hebrews hmm. nine um, I'll start verse 11. Uh, this is, The writer of Hebrews is still continuing the same thought from chapter 8 and talking about the new covenant. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, when through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption verse 13, for if the uh, sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of the heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So clearly the death of Christ is what solidifies that new covenant. And now Christ is the federal head of that covenant. So if you are in Christ and united to him, you must therefore be part of the new covenant. And this is clearly talking about salvation. So those who are united to Christ by faith, who have been sprinkled with this blood of redemption in Christ through his sacrifice are now under the federal headship of Christ in the new covenant. They're inseparable writer of Hebrews does not make a distinction. He sees them as one and the same. This is really an issue where, um, you know, respectfully James white made has made an error where he has made a distinction that Abraham was saved under the covenant of grace, but that he was not part of the new covenant. Um, And this is, you know where we would disagree, and where 1689 federalism really distinguishes itself from other covenant theology perspectives. So I just wanted to point that out.
1: Yeah, if if we can, or we, if the Old Testament say saints were saved by virtue of the covenant they were in, why was there needed to be? Why is there a need for a new covenant? Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, why why does god say that a new covenant is coming uh and specifically tie it to the remission of sins if that's not needed um Mm
0: -hmm. yeah there's clearly a contrast Uh, being made here you know here's what the old covenant did Mm -hmm. with bloods and uh blood of goats and bulls it can't do anything Mm -hmm. but the and then in chapter 10 talks about christ's sacrifice being once for all um I'm trying to see, oh, uh, 10 verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat on the right hand of God, waiting for that time until these enemies should be made of on his feet. And then for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Clearly salvific language, soteriological language being made here um, as it relates to his death and tying that back to the new covenant. Mm -hmm. So um, this is probably the strongest I would say the strongest argument in scripture uh, for 1689 federalism and biblical covenant theology. And what's ironic is Dr. White even said that um, if this was such a, you know, it basically implied that Hebrews doesn't talk about this and that it should have, or it would have if 1689 federalism was actually taught in the Bible. Um, but we've demonstrated that mm-hmm. it is here.
1: Yeah. I think he specifically said something to the effect of, Um, If Abraham was saved by the new covenant, you would have expected Hebrews to talk about it. And obviously we don't literally have the sentence in Hebrews. Abraham was saved by the new covenant, but uh, it's it's all over the epistle. Uh, Even jumping to chapter 11 here real quick, verse 13, uh, these all, and these all include Moses, Sarah, and Abraham, uh, and perhaps some of the other saints. I don't remember off the top of my head. These all died in faith, having not having received, the promises but seen them afar off and they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth this is saying that they hadn't received the promises now obviously there's a sense in which they were partaking of some of the benefits of the new covenant prior to its enactment but they didn't receive the substance of that promise um it, hebrews just blatantly says it
0: <laughs> yes but like for those who didn't that they didn't believe you know they didn't go into the land. They they died in their unbelief. Um, so yeah, yeah, very very important stuff here. Um, it as you know it's not minutia mm-hmm. um, that we're we're getting into. This is this has ramifications for the status of someone in um, in the church. You know, their Presbyterians essentially believe, um, at least some of them do, that there is a distinction in terms of membership with regards to the new covenant. You can have external membership, you can have internal membership, those who are really saved and those who are not saved. You know, what, if you have a faulty covenant theology, what does that imply in that sense? What does that imply for other aspects of salvation? Does that mean someone can be sprinkled with the blood of the covenant and be lost from that covenant? You know, what does that mean? Does that mean someone can lose their salvation? You know, there's these, important soteriological questions that start mm-hmm. to come up once your covenant theology at least in that sense starts to crumble mm-hmm. so but, it's important it's not it's not minutia. it's it's important it has very big ramifications
1: yeah the the conflict between Reformed baptists and presbyterians is not ultimately a conflict about baptism as surprising no. as that might sound no. it's a it, it's a conflict about who is a member of the new covenant and what does that mean? That's Mm -hmm. ultimately what it's about.
0: Covenant theology is the distinction. Yep. Yep. All right. Um, So another area that we see um, with regards to the covenant, if we go to second Corinthians chapter three, and I was actually, this was a place where I was not expecting to find any type of description on covenant theology, but there is some here. So I can get to it And Corinthians three, starting in verse six says who has made us uh, competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills what the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here we see clear language of fulfillment in Christ as opposed to what the old covenant had brought. And this is using the explicit terms, as he says in verse 6, who made us a competent, uh, competent to be members of a new covenant. And he, Paul goes on to explain what that means in this case. So that's that's very important to to understand. There's this distinction. There's no separation within that covenant. There's no separation of salvation outside of that. It's in the Lord, and it's in the context of the new covenant.
1: Yeah, and the the contrast there is important. Uh, Verse 6 is saying, who's made us ministers of the new covenant. Verse 7 then contrasts it with the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones. So, and that's clearly talking, therefore, about the old covenant. Right. So. Which only yeah, that, brought death
0: through the law and
1: condemnation. Exactly. Exactly. That covenant could only bring death to the point where it's literally called, or Paul literally calls it the ministration of death. These are two very different types of covenants. They're not uh, two administrations of the same covenant sharing that same substance. Uh, that no great,
0: no, no, covenant of grace there. No. The covenant no, of death. No. No. <laughs>
1: All right. Um, did you want to talk about Galatians, or did you just want to move on?
0: Um, yeah, let's touch on Galatians, and then we can okay. uh, we can move on to our last topic. So Galatians three is our last um, passage that we'll look at today, and there's others we can go to, um, but you know these I think are are enough to um, to show that this is a biblical doctrine. So Galatians three, starting in verse fifteen through twenty nine, Paul is. To give some context here, Paul is rebuked the Galatians for t- turning their eyes to a different gospel, not holding on to faith alone, and going back to Abraham, um, giving the example of Abraham that the righteous shall live by faith. And then he talks in verse 15 of chapter 3 to give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. This goes back to what we talked about in 2 Corinthians. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith has come, or now that faith has come, we are no longer under your guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So not only do we see a consistency between what was given to Abraham and what was given here, and Paul even says in Galatians that the gospels preach to Abraham, at least in some sense. Um, But we see the contrast again here, very similar to what we see in 2 Corinthians, that the law or the old covenant uh, really held us uh, in bondage and that it killed. And Paul talks about this in Romans, you know, through the law, he died, right? Sin only reveal, or uh, the law only reveals sin. Therefore it condemns you. It brings you spiritual death in that sense. It cannot save in and of itself. But then the contrast is faith in Christ. Now salvation is found under Christ. And like the writer of Hebrews has said, his blood has solidified that covenant. And now he Christ is the mediator of that covenant. So we are united to Christ by faith uh, in him. And so by doing that, uh, we can see here that, or by showing this here, we can see that there is a clear uniting of believers to Christ in the new covenant. And there is no distinction made in terms of a people group from that covenant. They, you're, If you're in Christ, you're part of this covenant. But if you fall under the old law, if you're going to follow those ways, then you are still bound to that covenant there there's just there's this dichotomy created here there's nothing else no other option given if you're in christ you're in the new covenant if you're not in christ um but continuing to pursue the old covenant ways as the judaizers were doing um then you are not under the new covenant so um so that's really kind of the biblical argument that we see um at least in in i think probably the most explicit places in scripture that talk about um these things but John, did you want to add anything else before we move on?
1: The only thing uh, I'd want to add is um, sometimes you have uh, people, the Presbyterian covenant theology, um, persuasion, emphasize that people are saved through the Abrahamic covenant as opposed to, well, not as opposed to the Mosaic covenant, but emphasize that people are saved through the Abrahamic covenant. And I could see how somebody potentially uh, could try to read uh, Galatians here as um, people are saved through the Abrahamic covenant in the sense of the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace and they're saved through the substance of that uh, and I, I just at that point uh, remind um, whoever I was speaking to of the fact that well we needed a new covenant we needed um, a sacrifice in order to take away sins and that is in the new covenant it's not a part of the Abrahamic covenant right. so even though People are saved, in a sense, through the Abrahamic covenant. In a sense, Abraham was saved through that uh, because he believed on the promises. But it's by that that he was actually partaking of benefits of the new covenant. Um, he wasn't saved through the substance of the Abrahamic covenant.
0: Right. It was essentially the means by which the, the, the promise was encapsulated in there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the covenant itself did not save. It couldn't. Mm-hmm. He was still looking forward to something mm-hmm. that was coming. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly right. All right. And our final topic, uh, very briefly, we'll just look at, um, you know, does church history support this view? So, and we've touched upon this a little bit already, but um, I think it's important to discuss this briefly. So we've seen the biblical argument, we've seen what 1689 federalism is at a high level, but is this something that particular Baptists held to? Did the writer of our our confession believe in 1689 federalism, or is it just something that, you know, people think is cool and we're just um we just think it'd be cool to believe in 69 federalism. No, we believe that this is what they believe Um especially as it relates to the new covenant not being present in the old. I think that's important. So I'm going to read from our confession chapter 7. I can't remember what paragraph this is, uh, but it's in chapter 7. It says, "quote, this covenant is revealed in the, this talk about the new covenant. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam." In the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman and afterwards by further by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the new testament and it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the father and the son about the redemption of the elect and it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen adam uh, that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in a state of innocency. So we touched upon this a little bit earlier that the new covenant is revealed over time. First of all, in Adam, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, that is where it is revealed for the first time. So we can see um, that there is this clear distinction made of um, you know, between the new covenant in terms of when it was actually created. It was not here in the, in the prior to Christ dying and his solidification, but it was revealed through promise. It was revealed over time. Um, but covenant theology was an integral part of the particular Baptists who wrote our confession. Uh, we can see this from writings from men like Benjamin Keech, um, who were Nehemiah Cox, who was a, I think he was another signer of our confession Uh, It was something that they lived and breathed and they saw the importance of this. Um, They didn't believe that the covenant of grace existed in the old covenant, but it showed itself over time and was solidified in Christ. Um, That's very important to understand. Uh, James Renahan notes um, has noted that really the chapters in our confession on Christology and soteriology are really rooted in the development of the covenant of redemption or the new covenant. So I think when we I think there might be a tendency to read our confession as these separate chapters, but they are where they are intentionally. You know, the the doctrine of the chapter uh, on Holy Scripture, chapter one, is where it is for a reason. Same with chapter two on the doctrine of God. They are first because they are the foundation of everything that comes after. So it's important to understand that Uh, these chapters were not just arbitrarily placed, they were there for a reason, there was a certain flow to the confession that the writers wanted to communicate. Um, But 1689 was widely accepted among Baptists prior to dispensationalism, I thought that was very interesting. Um, So it seems dispensationalism may have caused some of these uh, tertiary views of covenant theology within uh, Baptists, and and I think even uh, particularly Reformed Baptists.
1: So, so what you're saying is actually the modern uh, Reformed Baptist view of covenant theology might be an overreaction to dispensationalism
0: mm, it maybe, could be maybe <laughs>
1: maybe yeah I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw a huge amount of weight on that uh, statement I, I just thought it was funny oh yeah uh, well that, I thought it
0: was interesting because James Ranahan said that and I was like hmm mm-hmm. so it almost sounds like he's saying that dispensationalism was really the catalyst of these mm-hmm. other views in Reformed baptist circles Which, about covenant theology
1: it, it makes sense because dispensationalism a influenced baptist circles very heavily oh yeah yeah and oh, yeah. b uh it has it has that sharp distinction between the old covenant and new covenant that I, uh to the point where it's almost two separate plans of salvation or in some cases it is literally two separate plans of salvation oh yeah um and obviously, as a Reformed Baptist, I would immediately pull back on that and emphasize, no, there is a, there's a unity of God's plan, and you can see that in the unfolding of the covenants. Right. Uh, the, the issue is then when you, you then conflate all those covenants into one covenant of grace, and that's, we wouldn't think would be appropriate.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then there was also a view among particular Baptists uh, with regards to the nature of um, a covenant of works. That the covenant of works in the Mosaic covenant was not exactly like that that was given to Adam since the old covenant had some redemptive aspects to it. You know, With with the high priestly system, the sacrificial system, there is a redemptive aspect that the the covenant of works given to Adam did not have. With Adam, it was just you do this, you live, you don't do it, you die. There was no way to um, atone for his sin in and of itself through that covenant of works. Uh, Benjamin Keach notes this. Um, he says, quote, True, sure, there was another addition or administration of it, the covenant of works, given to Israel, which though it was a covenant of works, i.e., do this and live, yet it was not given by the Lord to the same end and design as the covenant was given to our first parents, uh, viz., it was not given to justify them or to give them eternal life, end quote. And then finally, he says, quote, Though evident it is that God afterwards more clearly and formally repeated this law of works of the people of Israel, though not given in that ministration of it for life, as before it was to Adam, yet as so given, it is by St. Paul frequently called the Old Covenant and the Covenant of Works, which required perfect obedience of all that were under it, end quote. So, you know, all this to say that covenant theology was very important to our particular Baptist forefathers, um, they were 1689 Federalists. They wouldn't have called it that. that that's, a, that's a modern term applied to it to distinguish this view of covenant theology from others. But this is consistent historically with the framers of our confession. It's consistent biblically, um, and uh, we think that uh, that this is something that is very important. Covenant theology is not something to take lightly. Um, it's not an easy topic, um, even in preparing for today. It was. It's not an easy topic to cover, um, but one that has ramifications. If you get it wrong, it can have implications for. Especially, I think baptism is the biggest one that it has implications for, um, but other areas as well. You have anything else you want to add, Sean?
1: Um. So I, I guess I would just go into the. Uh, so. Are, is 1689 federalism an overreaction to Presbyterianism? No. Uh, no. We, now, while I will say that my covenant theology has become sharper because of my interactions with Presbyterians, I held this prior to knowing what uh, Presbyterian covenant theology actually looked like. Honestly, just reading through, I, I, I came from a liberal Lutheran church before this, uh, before I became a former Baptist. And just reading through Galatians and Hebrews essentially cured me of, uh, or not cured me, that's the, that's, that's the wrong phrase there, um, uh, helped me to see what was so special about the new covenant. Um, and that's what really led me in a 1689 federalist direction. I wouldn't say that I was reacting against anything except why the, the, um, the question lingering in my mind is like, why are all these dead people dead spiritually in this liberal lutheran church and investigating that and looking through that and coming to the conclusions like no the promises of god are quite different um so i wouldn't necessarily say that it's uh necessarily a reaction against presbyterianism at all maybe perhaps the um the uh framers of confession were reacting against presbyterianism but that's not ultimately (laughs) what was being argued
0: yeah yeah um so yeah and I know this is a long shot, but Doctor White, if you're if you do happen to mm-hmm. listen to this, you know we hope this has educated you. I know you said it sounded like in your video that you were um, very much, or in the video I saw that you were willing to learn and to listen and understand this view. And if you do happen to listen to this, we hope this is helpful. Um, this isn't meant to bash you, but we hope that no. uh, you know that this is helpful and can maybe help you to see other views and, and hopefully study these things for yourselves as they're found in scripture. Um, but with that, that is all we have for today. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we will be having an interview with Jeffrey D. Johnson. Um, he will be uh, talking about his new documentary, uh, the church. And I can't remember the subtitle, Sean, do you remember it?
1: Oh, I don't actually No, it, the head. pillar
0: and ground of truth. I think hmm. it was, that was the subtitle. Um, and we're going to be talking about, um, talking about his documentary. And then the week after that, um, on the 16th, which is a Monday, we're going to be interviewing pastor Tom Hicks, and we're going to be talking about theonomy, another, uh, touchy topic in reform Mm. circles. So, um, we look forward to those, um, in the meantime, everyone have a great weekend, a great Lord's day, and we will see you guys next week.
1: God bless you all.